For November 21st, 2016, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 438. The flapper is a goblin, and she's singing jazz. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny, at least we like to think so. Friends from the internet, we're never happier than when we are talking about the things we love, the movies, TV, music, and so forth, uh, that really gets our brain gears turning. This week, it's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is uh, also known as Harry Potter without Harry Potter. Uh, and that's uh, uh, taking the box office by storm this weekend, starring Eddie Redmayne and Catherine Waterston, and set in a magical 1920s New York, which is every bit as atmospheric as it sounds like, with the the speakeasies and the spit curls and the uh, uh, and the the flapper attire. Except the flapper is a goblin, uh, and she's singing jazz. Uh, but first, uh, let's introduce the panel for your overthinkers tonight. We have the indomitable trio of Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Mark Lee. Hey, it's good to be back. Are we in the Xander zone or are we still outside of it? I'm not quite sure where we fall with regards to Xander zone. Yeah, it's a, it's a liminal space. It's like the, mm. uh, it's like a magical bubble, uh, around something terrible that's happening underground. And, uh, <laughs> I'm Matt rather your host. Uh, all right, let's get this, let's get this kicked off. Uh, question of the week, not having to do with fantastic beasts and where to find them. You may have heard that our vice president elect, Mike Pence went to the theater this uh, uh, this week, and uh, the uh, cast of Hamilton had some choice words for him at a theater in New York, and uh, and then our president elect had some had 140 choice characters uh, in response to that. Um, I'm not concerned with getting into the whole uh, brouhaha, the whole social media back and forth. Uh, Scoring, uh, uh, scoring points. Um, one of my favorites. One of my favorites, though, is a daguerreotype of of President Lincoln that says, uh, uh, "You think the theater should be a safe space, bitch? Please." Uh, that you know that, that summed up the tempest in a teapot quite well. But um, but I am excited by this news, and this is huge. Um, the vice president elect is a theater goer. And so we want to guide his viewing a little bit. Panel, question of the week, what musical, what piece of theater should our vice president-elect see next uh, in order to better his spirit, uh, in order to have a supremely useful aesthetic experience, or in order to prepare him for uh, the weighty office that uh, he is set to assume on January 20th? What play, musical, work of theater should he see next? First in the alphabet, drink. It's Pete Fenzel. So I'm going to give him a little time because I'm imagining something that is going to happen in some form, and we all know it, but it hasn't happened yet on a live stage. So some of you who have been paying attention to Los Angeles radio may be aware that Hollywood star Shia LaBeouf went on the Five Fingers of Death freestyle competition with Sway in the Morning. So this is a, a rapping off the dome, as it were. Uh, it's, not, it's not a formal competition, more of a bragging rights situation. And Shia LaBeouf was a pretty good freestyle rapper, like pretty solid, right? I mean, you guys heard this, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about because I sent it to you because it's that impressive, right? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I, it was a creditable effort at freestyle rapping for a yeah. what I assumed was a non-specialist. Yeah, and when there is a celebrity doing a creditable effort, I mean that just screams Broadway to me, huh. right? That's like that's like David Hasselhoff and Jekyll and Hyde. That's like like what I'm saying right here is that it is a matter of time. I don't know if it's months, years, weeks until we get the Sheila Buff one man hip hop musical 
that we've always wanted. I, I, I've been playing with names. I'm thinking uh, bring in Lanois, bring in LaBeouf is a good one. Uh, <laughs> maybe the Transforming Man is, is a, if you want to do sort of a futuristic concept album. Optimus Rhyme. Perhaps is, is something that. Uh... <laughs> okay, based on the reaction, I think Optimus Rhyme is the way to go. The Shia LaBeouf Transformers hip hop, not jukebox. More of a more of a. Uh, I guess it's not a jukebox musical. It's a SoundCloud musical. A musical made out of sounds songs that people record in their spare time while doing other things, uh, and coordinated through some sort of forced plot device. But no, I think that when the Shia LaBeouf one man show, which I hope is a musical and a hip hop musical specifically. Because the man has uh, sufficient skills to pull it off. I hope when that opens that Mike Pence is front and center on opening night. Uh, I, I hope that, and I hope that he really, he really appreciates the whole segment on holes that starts out the whole thing. Because uh-huh. I'm sure it's going to dig deep uh, into that was that's uncalled for. That that pun there was uncalled for. I'm, uh... I'm so sorry. Where's LaBeouf? Is what I want to know. The buff, LaBeouf. He says in the rap how to pronounce his name. So if you need no other reason to listen to Shia LaBeouf freestyle, it's to listen to him guide you on how to pronounce uh, his name when talking about in it. His, in, his somewhat, in his somewhat halting flow, but again, I think he's like kind of a non-specialist, right? Like, a, I think that we should give LaBeouf the benefit of the doubt. Uh, <laughs> le, le benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Shia LaBeouf, it was interesting because he approached it patiently, which is not the first impulse people have when they freestyle. And also, people freestyling often go for end rhyme. And Shia LaBeouf was really co- comfortable going for internal rhyme and assonance, right? So, which is, which to me speaks to kind of a newer style of rap, right? Because when I think of like rap progressions, it kind of starts out with full sentence end stop rhyme, right? The t- yeah, the, sure. Know, Beastie. The two just ain't no good. The two all soggy. It tastes like wood, right? It ends on a rhyming word. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, the uh, Beastie Boys style, or uh, as we like to point out, it's the uh, improv warm up rap game, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, exactly. You, you know? know, I went to the store and bought some kale. First time in nine years. Guess who won the football game? Woohoo! Yeah! <laughs> That's a whole other thing. But <laughs> but no, and then, and then it goes into the Ice Cube says it gets funky when you have a subject and a predicate, and you end up with these the West Coast style with the longer sentences and the enjambment and things like that. But she, and, and then you have that sort of hyper rhythmic, uh, that sort of very, uh, very percussive, uh, very, very sort of like Baroque metrical stuff that comes out of the early aughts combined with the crunk. So, like the Eminem and the crunk and stuff. And then she, uh, she has much more modern. He feels it feels more like a uh, Lil Wayne influence, Lil Wayne influenced, uh, you know, where, where he's, he's hitting individual words and kind of leaning into the vowels. Yeah, sure. So, that that and, and creates that assonance. That said, yeah. uh, the uh, Jordan Stokes on Overthinking It wrote uh, an interesting analysis uh, of Rakim uh, and some like early classic hip hop uh, lyrics, and the the way he uses offbeats and internal rhyme is not dissimilar to the kind of the kind of thing that you're talking about. Is you know oh. a d- early and early virtuoso. I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. And while I do that, uh, we're going to hear the answer from Mark Lee. What's uh, what's what are you going to send uh, uh, Mikey, our our, uh, our vice president elect, to go see? Uh, Mikey the VP. Mikey, Mikey the um, Veep. Mikey Veep is his. Mikey Veep, yeah, Mikey right, Veep is so his MC name. Mikey Veep and going to see Hamilton shows that he wants to be on the cutting edge uh, of theater, right? Because Hamilton, even though it's been on for quite some time, is still the hardest ticket to get on Broadway. Um, so uh, if he wants to continue to be uh, on the, at the cultural vanguard and seeing all the hot shows in New York City, the next show that he should see is actually uh, uh, The Great Comet, or really uh, more uh, extended, the Natasha and Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812. Um, the New York Times has declared us to be um, the next big thing, the, uh, the most innovative musical since Hamilton. Um, it also stars Josh Groban, by the way. So you got some stunt casting there. And so you, his dulcet tones will inspire our vice president to lead our nation to great heights. But here's the real reason why he should see the Great Comet is because it's based on Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace and uh, based on his commander in chief's uh, leaning. I think we all need to get a little more comfortable with Russian culture. So uh, that's my tip for Mike Pence and really anyone else who uh, wants to see something in theater in New York City that's not Hamilton. I I read the review of that. I mean, I don't know a lot about it. Um I read the review of it and it uh it was a just a mic dropping review. It got a rave in the Times from from Isherwood. 
Yeah, I'm seeing it next week, actually. So I will be able to report back and I will be able to tell you all about how uh, about the things I learned about Russian culture to, to help us and ease us in this transition. Yeah, absolutely. In this uh, in this difficult time. Yeah. And will a great I mean, will a great comet blaze its way across the sky uh, as happens, I guess, in War and Peace and as as happened in uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire as well to betoken the coming of a, uh, a strong ruler uh, who will rain fiery death down hmm. from the heavens uh all hail daenerys stormborn the unburnt queen of the andals and the first men uh khaleesi um is, is there not a game of thrones musical yet oh wow all right well <laughs> i guess we've we've actually discovered the great artistic project for which overthinking it was <laughs> was meant to <laughs> i i speak of the colossal waste of time that is to come after this website <laughs> I, I, I am not worthy to calculate the hours of lost productivity hands um, of gold are always cold <laughs> oh there's so many rhyming things bear the maiden fair reigns of castamere um so all right well uh here here we go pete i i have a question for you okay how Shoot. how are we gonna pay <laughs> uh, how me? how are we gonna pay uh well i mean if you if you consider your options, how you might... we gonna pay last <laughs> year's rent uh um well you could you could try this get, could year's get... rent oh so you're behind and you're also still going Next to be paying year's rent so you're paying ahead of time you're prepaying rent you've already got rent 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 where their garments <laughs> yes. in tears and it's not just rent 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 right you have to you know in full uh, in honor of Shia LaBeouf let's lean into the vowels it goes rent 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 yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, because everything is rent and not just the social fabric uh the um huh. the rent uh what you did there yeah uh, so rent is a i mean rent is not the first rock and roll musical but it it sort of uh i it was a milestone and a huge smash hit in the way that that hamilton a kind of a generation defining or a decade defining smash hit uh the way that in the 90s the way that uh wicked was in the aughts and um and hamilton is in this decade uh on you know uh and like like a show that was developed downtown and then moved to broadway and and um as now i think is done you know every year at 400 colleges around the around the country so not not only does it you know does it keep you sort of au courant with the culture of 25 years ago but it also uh it, it also i think would introduce the vice president-elect to a kind of uh a bohemian mentality a you know to the other america um you know the 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 uh, urban elitist artistic uh, uh, you know, socially marginalized, uh, America and, uh, hear their, their cry of protest. Um, as they say, uh, we're not going to pay. We're not going to pay. We're not going to pay last year's rent, this year's rent, next year's rent, 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 rent. I don't know. What do you think the, the, the cast of rent would have to say to, uh, uh, would have to say to to the vice president elect as he walked out the door, you know, uh, probably something about AIDS. I thought you were going this direction because uh, Mike Pence took a lot of flack uh, for his response to an HIV outbreak while he was governor of the state of Indiana. Um, so, yeah, there's the AIDS thing. <laughs> and also there's also there's that. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think it would, I think it would start with two two million one hundred and two thousand. 400 minutes, right? I was trying to do some quick cocktail napkin math. Right. Uh, 2,102,400 moments so dear. 200,102,400 minutes. How do you measure the next four years, right? As, as, mm. and, and, then, and then, you know, they would start naming things that you measure time in. It would sort of go from a highly mathematic to a more proof rockian notion of time, right. which is what it always does. Mm. But uh, maybe they would switch what they talk about. I don't know. Yeah. In, in, I mean, maybe he just uh, yeah. would be comfortable with a piece of pop culture that includes answering machines, just because he likes things the way that they were, rather yeah. than the way they will be in the future. Um, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Rent is an interesting uh, 
I don't know. What do you think his favorite song in Rent would be? Speak like, uh, beep. Um, <laughs> the the famous answering machine. I don't know. It's it's all uh, uh, Rent is is a very good first act and a terrible second act. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, w- that is that is just dramatically dead. Um, like I, I think the most dramatically dead uh, piece of the second act of Rent is is when they all like line up and give funeral speeches. You know, mm-hmm. uh, one yeah. after one after the other, and uh, and literally nothing nothing happens. Literally, there's no conflict, rising tension, you know, catharsis, release. It's uh, you know, not that it's not moving, and not that it's not not that giving a funeral speech isn't an important thing to do for a friend that you loved. It 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 certainly is, um, and not that that the circumstances of the play aren't sad. It's just that it's not you know. Uh, it's not what you'd call drama in that it doesn't necessarily move a story forward. Um, I think he'd like Out Tonight. I just think he'd, it's a good number, right straight down the middle. You know? <laughs> take me, take me or leave me. Yeah, yeah, take me for what I am, for what I was meant to be, right? Uh, take me or leave me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, is that as much of a message of the level of, uh, the level of engagement between these two audiences as we're going to see, so... Right. There we go. The, uh, Can we create a magical bubble around all this? Yeah. And- <laughs> Let's do this. Let's magically bubble off the uh, the question of the week and talk a little bit about fantastic we- beasts and and where to find them. And I'd, I'd like to open off uh, the conversation um, with a question uh, inspired by many of the questions that we ask on the TFT podcast. Uh, it goes like this: Fantastic beasts. Where to find them? <laughs> where do you where do you find them, uh, Mark? You're in New York right now. Uh, are there any Fantastic Beasts around you? Uh, New York is nothing if not Fantastic Beasts, right? I mean, to find Fantastic and to find Beasts, I think is look is how I would respond <laughs> to your question. And um, I would say watch the movie because it efforts to do those things. Right? Does it but, though? I think it doesn't actually tell you where to find the freaking Fantastic Beasts because uh, <laughs> they're in this suitcase and I don't know where they're indigenous to, and ostensibly the big bird is going to uh, be loose in Arizona. Restaurant in Santa Fe is what it's right. <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I was confused by a lot of what well, you're going to of which being the part about the fantastic beasts and where to find them. So uh, any uh, any light you can shed upon this or many other the burning questions I have. Uh, P, by were, all means, P, were you were you going to send the vice president to see Newsies and educate him about the labor movement? <laughs> I, I just sent him a VHS of the TV movie of Newsies to educate him about Christian Bale. And just, I don't know. I just I just feel like I want to do a non sequitur just because I feel like everyone else is going to be sending. I want to send him to Sunday in the Park with George just because I want to really challenge him. I want to see if he can really appreciate it. But, because you really want you really want him to understand 1980s failing our magic bubble. You want him to understand what map uh, 1980s conceptual art that involved <laughs> involved lasers. You know? Exactly. Pew 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 pew. Yep. Um, he loves Reagan, and that was all about. He was Reagan was all about conceptual late nineteen eighties lasers. So, I mean, this, so this is this is an interesting thing. There are a lot of ways to attack this movie. Like, what one is that? Like, one way to talk about it is to talk about the difference between uh, England and the United States, right? Um, where uh, another way is to kind of talk about what. Like what metaphorically is happening in in this movie, right? Because all of these uh, all of these sort of young adult series that were so um, uh, that were so popular that were so hot for for a hot second there, right? Like I had uh, a kind of metaphorical social message, and and Harry Potter did as well. It was sort of about authoritarianism and about. Uh, um, loyalty, friendship, and and uh, uh, you know, uh, especially sort of anti-authoritarian um, governments and and social social organizations, right? Like on on a conceptual level, uh, I don't know, Pete. Did you have did you have a sense, a read on on what this movie is about um, on a, on the just the highest level of abstraction, metaphorical level? Sure. So Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is about collapsing the dichotomy of magic being something on the outside 
and on the outside of the experience of life, on the outside of social organization, magic being associated with things like alternative identities or people being non-conventional or having secret dreams. This idea that magic is on the outside and society is on the inside, and it is the role of society. And it's, you start from the notion that there are people on the inside of society who regard magic, uh, and then there, and then there's this society which needs to keep it secret or needs to contain it or needs to deny it. And then what the movie attempts to demonstrate is that the magic is is all over the place, right? The Fantastic Beasts are pretty much everybody, right? Even Kowalski is a Fantastic Beast in this movie, right? And that's all of the romances are super overblown. Everything is super crazy. Uh, like a lot of the personal relationships are made extra melodramatic and, and, and are painted with sort of a precious brush that make them more beautiful, more, more, more magical, right? Uh, and the idea is Newt is a Fantastic Beast, right? People are annoyed by me. People don't like me. And then at the end, it's like, oh, no, you're actually really awesome because you're you're, uh, you know, this this uh, uh, fantasy person uh, and this person I really connect with and whatnot. But yeah, but just the whole the whole idea of the the obscurus. Right. Is that what's called the obscurus? Yes. Um, as is is rooted in this idea that you can attempt to purge or hide or exclude the magic uh, from human life and human organization, but you're merely just transforming it, right? Like, it will remain fantastic. The fantastic beasts are among you. It's a question of whether it's a matter of, of sort of benevolence or hostility. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I think that's that's really what it is, is that the fantastic beasts are everybody in the movie, and where to find them is among everyone and also in all of the other places. So, so right? I, I mean, in so many words, Pete, what you're saying is the Schwartz is in you, Lone Star. It's in you. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Another way of viewing it at a very high level is that Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is the opposite of the Rescuers Down Under, uh-huh. right? Right. When the re- and it's it, it hits all the notes, right? In that there's a giant golden bird, and there's a fat guy, and then there's a tall, more handsome guy, and then there there's this perceived competition for the affections of a woman that isn't actually happening, uh, and there's this bird that needs to be saved, right? Except in the Rescuers Down Under, the bird is on the outside of society, and in society is kind of encroaching on the bird and we need to save the outside of society right in order to help the bird be safe from the poachers and and this idea that that bernard being the pedestrian mundane sort of guy on the inside of society uh he feels insecure because he thinks bianca thinks that the kangaroo rat is is or kangaroo mouse rather is sexier than he is because the kangaroo mouse is on the outside and what's revealed is that no we can build we can build a wall right we can build a separation we can build a magic bubble uh between the wild and and, and society and what fantastic beast says is no the the bird doesn't live out in the desert the bird is something that we carry with us in a suitcase. And when the bird is sort of in full plumage, it is not in over the sort of unchallenged uh, desert scrubland of Australia or the canyons of the outback, right? Uh, it is it is in the center of New York City that the golden bird lives, right? And, that, and so in that sense, and also that, you know, Bernard, the most mundane person, is actually a magical person, is sort of invited into the magical tribe, right? Uh, I mean, and then excluded, which is something else to talk about. But that's 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 one way I would describe the movie as sort of an inverted Rescuers Down Under. And if you haven't seen Rescuers Down Under, I feel like you learned everything about it you need to just from me describing the plot. It's an anti-poaching movie about saving a bird from poachers that has a love mm-hmm. triangle involving mice. Um, All right. But so- yeah. Pete, as usual, you've uh, been able to sort of, you know, uh, raise, uh, quickly elevate my level of understanding and appreciation for a movie beyond what I was able to get for it. Um, This idea of sort of like, you know, the Fantastic Beasts are everyone. I I like that idea, um, and it makes the movie make more sense. But I still uh, am left with an overriding feeling with a movie as sort of having like two very different stories it was trying to tell. And like this sort of unifying theme that you're talking about of the Fantastic Beasts, everyone like didn't quite stick together for me. So like my read of the movie was that there was just like, uh, for lack of a better word, like sort of like an uh, 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 animal anti-animal cruelty and nature conservation message. Going right. on with the Fantastic Beasts and like the the, the game of Pokemon that New Commander <laughs> is playing across New York City to collect his beasts, um, yeah. which did not for me dovetail well with the whole like um, you know magic on the outskirts of society and uh, and the and the New Salem people that are oppressing magic and are afraid of magic and this uh, credence uh, the boy is um, 
uh, you know, basically like a closeted gay kid and, and is told to keep his magic inside. Um, those two, that felt like two different movies going on. And it made, for me, it felt, made the movie felt dis- disjointed and slow. And thematically, I thought that they were like, you know, kind of uh, adjacent to each other and not quite as, as, as uh, bound together in this unifying theory that you thought. So Pete, like uh, work that through with me a little bit there. Like, do you well, feel like, uh, how, how do these things uh, unite a little more together? Like a good example, a good pathway into this is the Kowalski character, right? Who I was like, uh, I just really thought it was like, you are just audience stand-in. You're here to explain things for us. And I wasn't feeling him integrate into either of the two plots that I described here. So like, tell me like how he's a fantastic beast and how he ties all this together. Uh, I mean, well, Matt, do you want to get in on this? I kind of want to go in. I want to go in a different direction. So you cash out your, you cash out your, your idea for sure. So the le- I felt like the thing that on the surface feels the least plausible about the movie. Oh, I wouldn't dispute with you, Mark, that one of the movie's problems is that it is trying to do multiple things at once. Yeah, and those. And- by the way, sorry, I, I will shoehorn in to say yeah. there were still more movies beside the two that Mark described in this uh, uh, in this sequence, right? Like there was a lot of stuff being set up. Uh, John Voight, right? Like John Voight is there for a reason. You don't play yeah. the John. Vo- you don't tap the John Voight card in your deck right if you don't have like a, a long-range plan for uh for how how your how john is is going to void he may be void but he is not void um but the uh uh and and yeah and then doing some doing some world building ahead of uh ahead of an a whole new uh a whole new sequence of movies that is going to come out and also just kind of like you know pounding in the stakes of the tent that is going to be the uh the Harry Potter universe that is i guess going to exist alongside the Marvel universe the Star Wars universe uh the DC universe if they manage to ever make a movie that that doesn't make you want to slit your wrists um the uh, and and on and on like this was over determined right this this there was a lot of um there was a lot of stuff to uh the, the it had a lot of uh a lot of stuff to do okay back to your regularly scheduled fenzel yeah sure and we can go back to that whole idea right but so the thing that makes the least sense intuitively to me about the movie is why does uh and i'm i'm, well, I'm blanking on her name why does the blonde Betty or the blonde sort of like uh, take back your make guys and dolls character, right? Uh, the bombshell. Uh, Queenie, is, Queenie, Queenie Goldstein. Queenie Goldstein. I remember her last name was Goldstein. Why does Queenie Goldstein like Kowalski? Right, because Kowalski is short, he's overweight, uh, he is unemployed, he's like a factory worker, right, and he's not happy with his job. There's everything about Kowalski, and he's also not the protagonist, right? He's not the protagonist. He doesn't seem to be suffering sufficiently in his state of mind to be a romantic protagonist in his current state, and he doesn't meet the expectations that we would have for like a dashing romantic hero. And really, he doesn't meet society's beauty standards, even though I think he's one of those guys or people where if you look at him you're like oh no that's a guy who has really good facial structure he's you know it's it's a, it's a that's a that's a that's a good looking dude right yeah, i'm sure that, that, if I met that, him in person, that dude's a film actor yeah exactly if i met him in person it would be like oh that guy is improbably attractive right uh and like and he, so he's in a big movie right uh, so but making, but, the, but making yeah. the characters unattractive was a particular feature uh yes. of this <laughs> right of this film because you can you can take uh uh, you can take Catherine Waterston and, like, you know, reverse Princess Diaries her uh, yeah. a little bit just to uh, – uh, just, I mean, largely so you can score a big reveal before they go into the speakeasy and she gets into the, the flapper um, – the flapper the flapper outfits. But is that a rhetorical question? Like, why does she, why does she like him? Uh, or is it a uh, – no. are, are you about to answer it? Well, I, what I was saying was – well, first of all, it doesn't really matter why. Um, it's that she does, and she recognizes something about him that she realizes. I mean, we could talk about why, but the point is that in the movie she does, right? And the movie, this in you know this magical, done up, beautiful woman likes this guy, and it's not doesn't give the vibe of it being like a king and king of queens kind of situation where she has no other options, right? Like or where uh, he you know they have a sort of comfortable relationship, and he's been allowed to let himself go, and she isn't, right? Like she legitimately seems to find him fascinating his dream of being a baby 
Baker, his experience in his life, you know, his relationships, his feelings about the people that he cares about. And there's a sense of wonderment about the Kowalski character, right, that, that he's been able to step into the magical world in the way that so few muggles have successfully. Muggles in the Harry Potter universe don't tend to be the most receptive to the wizarding world, right? They don't tend to be, they don't tend to step into it with joy. They tend to stand on the outside of it, like, with sadness, and and with and with grief and grief for others. But right? I, so, of, I, I, yeah, I think there's an answer to your. I think there's an answer to your question, Pete. Though, and I think it has to do with with the ultimately the kind of the. Uh, a humane social vision that J.K. Rowling has developed over the course of a lot of books, right? Because, like, she is firmly on the side of the Arthur Weasleys, right? Of the guy who's fascinated with muggle trivia, right? She's uh, she's on the side of sort of eccentrics uh, who... Uh, who are are fascinated by seemingly trivial or seemingly humble things, and she is dead set against uh, the people who are kind of the Slytherins, right? Like the people who are yeah. into the into the trappings of power, into the things that seem um, into the things that seem uh 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 you know swanky right like when she kills the senator uh in the i mean when in the sen- the the story the character of the senator is killed in the thing like it's he he is not an interesting character her to her uh to begin with so it's a it's a useful thing plot wise because it's a high status person and it's it's uh someone who's who's a little bit uninteresting to her so like in in that right like he is um he is all of those things kowalski he's he's uh uh humble seems trivial is rough around the edges uh is seems unbeautiful on on the outside and and queenie establishes that she's one of the good guys by sort of seeing seeing through that by by liking him in spite of that, liking him anyway, or liking him because uh, because of that, um, and seeing seeing through to a kind of intrinsic and like the idea that she can read minds, right? Like can see through to yeah. a sort of uh, see through to a sort of intrinsic good. But it does like it is an interesting question that he's sort of deemed as being one of the one of the, one of the worthy. And like to to me, an important scene in this regard is the scene around the uh, the scene around the dinner table, right? when they first take them into the apartment and they're, they're going to sit down and they're, they're making dinner and there's like a knife floating in midair cutting carrots and like the, um, the, the streusel comes together, uh, you know, in a, in an extraordinarily sinuous and elegant, uh, fashion and is cooked midair before, you know, coming in for a soft, a soft landing on the table, right? Like this is what, this is what he wants to do. This is what Kowalski wants to do. He wants to have a bakery with uh, things like this, with um, uh, you know, uh, pastries like this. But he wants to make them like with the sweat of his brow uh, and and make them by hand. Um, then he then uh, uh, she she kind of mag- magics it together. And I think that like he. He's there for the kind of artisanality of it, but really the the thing that's being collapsed, the dichotomy that's being collapsed to me is the the efficiency and convenience of mass production and the authenticity of being of being handmade, right? Because he, he works in a cannery, you know, he, he, uh, we're, we're, this movie is, it comes down against automation, against modern conveniences, against, uh, all this stuff. And that, and this is a feature of the, the Harry Potter universe, um, in general, right? Like we don't like technology. Uh, we don't, and, and to a certain extent, we don't like egalitarianism, right? Because there's no more, uh, elite elite than some people are, are just magic and uh and some people aren't and that's right. uh uh i you know to me it like it it's not to me this is where i take issue a little bit with with your uh description of the ultimate meaning of the movie it's not that like the magic is within all of us or the magic is kind of imbued into daily life like the magic is imbued into the people who are good enough to magic Right. And mm. uh, and it's it, it, it's interesting that he um, is briefly he's almost good enough to to magic. And then in the end, uh, in the end, he's sort of not he's he's kind of a bottom figure. Right. Mm. He has had a most 
uh, rare. Which you, you mean in the Shakespearean? Yeah, in the in the yeah. in the Shakespearean sense. He's uh, Bottom the Weaver, who is uh, who play who is actually the one who gets the donkey ears affixed yep. to his head uh, in a Midsummer Night's Dream, and has this incredible romp in the the forest with the fairies. Uh, wakes up and says, uh, "I have had a most rare vision." When he and thinks it's all you know, thinks it's uh, thinks it's all a dream. Um, it actually yeah. it kind of has the structure of a Shakespearean comedy in in that sense, uh, and it ends with tears in a journey. So let's, uh, uh, but but uh, but yeah, right. Like the the magic. Uh, she likes him. She likes him because he's good enough. She likes him because he sees uh, what ought to be a kind of egalitarian message or a kind of um, humanistic message of don't don't look you know look beneath the surface look beneath the superficial side of things but is actually uh an uncomfortably elitist message which is that like he's he's almost good enough to get into our special school i think it's important to think about remember with jk rowling that she's a teacher right and and one thing that a teacher has is a teacher has her kids right And so a teacher, there are always going to be some kids that a teacher cares for more than other kids because the teacher has responsibility for the kids that she teaches, but is around a whole lot of other kids that she cares about, but aren't her kids at a given time, right? Like she can't or he can't, right, Uh, do these things. And I agree with what you're saying that that uh, that the Harry Potter world has an elitism to it because some people are worth it and some people aren't. I think that it connects back to what Mark was saying about the tension that this movie has because one thing this movie isn't is it isn't like star trek 4 right where it's like oh there's this for there's this forgotten wisdom in the wild right newt does isn't like uniquely magically powerful because he's gone to the sudan right Uh, he's powerful because he went to the sudan and cared for someone there and found someone who mattered to him but this is the uh this is the not the wildlife of the of the of the wilderness this is like the wildlife of like the countryside and the garden right this is like wildlife that is tended to hagrid is a gamekeeper right hagrid is not a hunter uh hagrid hagrid is not like a frontiersman right back in the original harry potters hagrid has a responsibility for the creatures that he watches over in the land that has been dedicated for that purpose right uh there are not really wild animals so much in Harry Potter, right? They're they're notably absent, I think. Even like the dragon kind of exists within humanity to an extent, you know, in the Goblet of Fire and whatnot. Um, and so it's not a question of and and like for example, uh, you know, it ends up being okay that Newt doesn't release the eagle to into Arizona and instead releases it into New York, right? That ends up being okay. It ends up being okay that Newt has the last breeding pair of that fantastical bovine that he has. Because wildlife is something that people who can and care have a responsibility for. I think I think that that is a, that is a distinction. People who can and care, right? And it, it is it is a fantasy that if you care, you can. I think I think it is a fantasy that is supposed to help the people who care. It is to say, well, in my books, the people who have responsibilities for other people, they tend to have magical powers, which help them, right? And that sort of supports you and reaffirms you in your notion that you're somebody who cares, therefore you are somebody who can. Um, and and, uh, or, and I guess what, like, that takes a really dark turn. What do, I mean, that stuff with uh, Credence and Graves, right, with Colin Farrell and 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 the like the I want to call them the Quincy, but you guys haven't watched Bleach, I don't think. Uh, this sort of secret order of uh, anti supernatural folks. Uh, he reminds me very much of a Bleach character, but the anti witches, right? The Salemites, as it were. Uh, they're like secret. I mean, you guys got the the enormous gay subtext there, right? Like that's that that. Oh that yeah, 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 yeah. That was exactly. uh, it. Was really hitting it on on the nose there, um, right? So, so yeah, let's talk about this. There's so, so many yeah. directions we can go. Like one yeah. thing that immediately comes to mind, though, is um, it's like very clearly evocative of um, the old Salem. Of course, the old Salem witch trials, right? And is it fair to call that what Calvinism, right? Basically, like an extreme fundamentalist version of Christianity 
um, that is uh, that 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 fears all these things that it doesn't understand and, and bottles up and represses, right? And it's like it the movie doesn't fully go there. I don't think I don't really expect it to like be a full throated attack against Calvinism, but like like I found myself wanting it to well, go it, there. It can't, and, uh, it can't it can't be a, a full throated attack against Calvinism because the thing that Calvinism and the progressive vision of the Harry Potter world have in common is a belief in predestination. Right. That there's a, you know, that there is a kind of set of characteristics. Um, there is a kind of set of characteristics, uh, uh, kind of characteristics that you're born with. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting thing, like theorizing about identity because some of it, some of it seems to be fixed. Some of it seems to be fluid. Uh, uh, some of it seems to be a product of of effort and uh, upbringing, and, and you know what I mean. Like that, uh, it's and it's sort of impossible to account. It's impossible to to account for uh, to account for all the factors, right? Like, had he been taken in with a nice wizarding family, what would have happened to what would have happened to Credence? Um, or there are, I mean, there are a lot of people who are just sort of who are like. Uh, it seems like Tom Riddle was sort of destined to be. Voldemort, you know, in the, from his first interview with uh, with Dumbledore, which is recounted in I think book six, um, in yeah, in, in Half Blood Blood Prince, right? Um, that uh, or is that Order of the Phoenix? I don't know. It's been a minute. Um, the uh, right, like from from the very first, he was he was sort of predestined, right? Like his 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 evil was already. Uh, uh, was already manifest uh, uh, a little bit, and so I mean, I think there's some. If you if you're going to try to theorize, or if you're trying to like, um, if you're trying to like come up with a stable idea of why the Salem people uh, are are bad and and the wizards are good, you're going to have to you're going to have to look beyond. Um, kind of fundamental beliefs, because though they disagree about where the lines are drawn, they don't disagree that some people are good and some, uh, uh, you know, some people are bad. Um, I think that the wizards are better because they have better fashion sense. Uh, in, <laughs> right in large part because their uh, house is their like wizard thing is a fantastic skyscraper uh, that you know has a giant uh, a giant clock mechanical clock in the middle of it and uh, and Samantha Morton and her um, her like uh, uh, I don't know her band of like circus performers or you know whatever they are uh, uh, dreary and and sort of drab right I mean if we're really talk about the sailing cleavage between these two groups it's that you know the wizards have real magic whereas the fundamentalist Christians only have the theoretical magic of the uh you know, of, of God's wrath in the afterlife. Yeah, but they don't, they don't itself. go Christian in the movie. It's no, no, they that don't. That's no, notably no. absent, right? That it's, and it's also the, 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 the question of who would win the war between humans and wizards is not really posed that much. I mean, this, this is as good a time as any to talk about Grindelwald, right? Yeah. Like, like we, we've got the, 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 that wonderful Tilda Swinton film. We've got to talk about Grindelwald, right? Right. Like, uh, <laughs> or is it? It's time to talk about Grindelwald. We've got to talk about Grindelwald. Uh, so, so, and again, I'm not a huge Harry Potter aficionado, but my girlfriend uh, saw this with me, and she was bringing me up to speed on some stuff. And then I was doing some reading. Uh, so, guys, you guys noticed that when Graves wants Credence to contact him, he gives him the necklace, right? right. You guys, I mean, Matt, you recognize the necklace? Right? I did, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, why don't you tell everybody what the necklace? Oh was? well, the necklace was a triangle uh, with a circle inscribed in it, and a uh, and a line bisecting the triangle, an equilateral triangle, uh, circle inscribed in a line bisecting the triangle, and these represent the uh, the Deathly Hallows, um, death's own, uh, you know, treasured objects, uh, the invisibility cloak, the the ring thing, and the Elder the Resurrection Wand. Stone, yeah. And, uh... Elder Wand, right? Yeah, and the Elder Wand, and that that um, 
the uh uh yeah and and this these things uh play a part um some of them from very early on and some of them in uh, later in the book like uh about uh, these things play a uh, a part in the the kind of ultimate mythology of the of the the Harry Potter books and so he and so Grindelwald is a character that kind of emerges later in the books as being uh as being part of this uh part of this mythology associated with Dumbledore um the uh and and yeah. uh and fascinated and kind of questing after in a uh you know in a monomaniacal way um eternal life and the the kind of the promise of death's own treasured objects which will you know together grant eternal life um to the person who possesses all three yeah, and, and Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Grindelwald is the character played by Johnny Depp, who appears at the end of the movie, who's been masquerading as Colin Farrell the entire the entire time. Upgrade or and, downgrade, do you think, Johnny Depp to Colin Farrell? Well, wait, Johnny Depp to Colin Farrell yeah, or I mean, Colin Farrell to Johnny Depp? No, on a, uh, uh, if, if you're Johnny Depp and you, uh, and you disguise yourself as Colin Farrell, are you slumming it? Or are you, you know, uh, uh, putting on airs, right? I think you're, you're upgrading yourself. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, which is interesting. So, so Dumbledore and Grindelwald in the mythology of Harry Potter are not entirely dissimilar to Grindelwald being the Magneto and Dumbledore being the Professor X, wherein they are they are together for a while and they're cooperating and they're both trying to get the Deathly Hallows together, but they kind of they kind of part. Uh, around this question of whether the superior people ought to use their superiority to dominate the less superior people or whether they should merely retire to a very nice house. Right. Uh, and and and, uh, and Dumbledore is like, no, 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 like we should we should they're both their credo is for the greater good. Right. And I think this answers part of your question, Mark, which is that in in Harry Potter, in the Harry Potter universe, the greater good is not really a defensible motivation to do things. Right. This idea that, like, we can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. You know, there's an ends that justify the means. We need to make the world better. We need to improve the world. We need to save the world. That's not really the way that you ought to be living your life in the Harry Potter universe. Um, like if, if you, you, can't, you can't use magic to kill Hitler and prevent the Holocaust. To no, really you can't. It. If you did that, something terrible would happen. Right. Uh, I mean, I can imagine what it would be like. I mean, basically, if, if there was a Harry Potter story where someone went back in time and tried to use magic to kill Hitler and prevent the Holocaust, what they would realize was that, like, you know, there was a seal on Hitler that was binding a far more evil magical creature or something or, or some horrible <laughs> wizard. This is why I don't like Harry Potter, by the way. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Well, Continue. To, to, to hash it out, right, like, you know, Harry and Dumbledore throughout uh, – Harry and Voldemort. Oh, sorry. I'm going to have to say his name. I'm, I'm, I, I try. I try to do the thing. I don't know if you guys try to do the thing, but I try to do the thing where I say he who must not be named and I don't talk about him when I'm talking about him because I feel like that's a really cool thing. But it gets really inefficient in long conversations. <laughs> so so and I can call him Tom Riddle, right? So, so Harry and Tom Riddle are kind of – soul bound right throughout the story and there's this idea that they kind of both have to die they're sort of like kami and king piccolo and dragon ball if one of them dies the other one dies that kind of thing uh they're linked right it's not specifically how it works i don't think but they're linked and there's this idea that that voldemort that harry can't just go whack voldemort right he can't just go like be like you know turn your punk ass over, right? And just doughboy him in the middle of the street. No, he can't. Harry can't do that to Voldemort because of the way that all of their uh, their destinies are intertwined in the various kind of magical enchantments and situations regarding his parents and all the other stuff that's going on. Um, in the end, Voldemort has to kind of destroy himself, right? And there's this idea that ambition destroys you, but having a kind of... Uh, Having a desire for authority and power such that you use it to care for other people in a way that they deserve and like in a compassionate way, even if it's imperialistic, is like perfectly fine in the Harry Potter universe, right? Like you could be a very powerful wizard and caring for uh, a human who never knows that you're there and protecting them from something they don't know exists. And it's OK that you don't tell them because it's you're benevolent, right? That kind of thing. Um, I mean, and that's what Grindelwald is going after. He wants a benevolent dictatorship of wizards over humans right and where dumbledore wants yeah, he's, uh, he's a he's like he has the well i haven't seen tonight's episode so this may have this may develop but uh he has the the anthony hopkins in westworld uh mentality right like yeah. he he takes care of his crea of his uh uh less his inferiors 
Yeah, that's what Grindelwald, at least when he was younger, really wanted. And that's distinct from Tom Riddle, who also wants to dominate humans, but wants to turn the world into a hellscape full of genocide and awfulness, right? Whereas Grindelwald is sort of a frustrated intellectual who doesn't quite understand the consequences of what he's trying to do. And even Johnny Depp when right. he shows so, up, he's so kind of like— d- Grindelwald is Lenin, right? Yeah. And, uh, and Voldemort is, is Stalin, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, that's a great <laughs> way of looking at it. And that makes uh, Colin Farrell— what um i'm trying to think who transforms into lenin who's more handsome than lenin and is is a better not a better actor maybe a better actor i not that's a hard that's a hard question well, i don't, I, think I don't know about i don't know about better, better actor, actor. No. i i i just realized i just googled them i that and uh Colin Farrell is like uh, 12 years younger so he's given himself he's given himself a, a facelift at least right yeah, yeah. Well, okay. so uh, all right, uh, let's pause for a second. Like, please, uh, someone explain to me what Colin Farrell slash Johnny Depp's uh, Grindelwald letter. What what was his master plan? Why did he want credence? And how does getting credence's power help him? What like be a benevolent magic dictator? And why is that so bad? Like the fundamental driving force of that part of the movie, I like I fail to understand. And it might be because I don't understand Harry Potter. I think it's too complicated and it's like just too much for my feeble Star Wars adult mind to understand. But like uh, I, I, that, that, like I, I left like really frustrated by not being able to understand. That nature of the conflict. Well, Mark, there. So Mark, if if, if you don't think Star Wars is complicated, I'm gonna have to tell you about some trade agreements. <laughs> I mean, this movie is a lot uh, like the Phantom Menace, yeah, because there's a very complicated, overarching plan. But the difference is that this movie gives you a much more simple thing for the characters to do that feels authentic and grounded. Catch uh, Pokemon. Catch Pokemon, exactly. You got to catch them all. So, so Grindelwald's plan is that Grindelwald wants to pull the veil away. Right. Grindelwald wants to lay bare to the whole world that magi- that wizards exist, the magicians. They're not magicians. You know, magicians are, are like tricks or something prostitutes do for money. He does illusions. <laughs> no, uh, that uh, Grindelwald is an, is a dark wizard. Right. And he's he's uncomfortably close to the dark arts just in general. And he wants to create ruckus such that humanity must acknowledge that the wizards exist and the wizards must acknowledge that humanity is aware of them and that they must interact with each other. Um, right. In order to do this, he's basically becoming a terrorist at this point, right? Where he's like, I just need to set up such a big thing, like a big Bafo explosion of some kind that everybody, nobody can look away. Right. He's sort of like Oz- is opposite of Ozymandias from Watchmen, although that's a unnecessary spoiler, which I guess I can back away from, because if you know what those words mean, you already know what happens. But uh, but this idea that, like, he's going to create something, I mean, I guess because the uh, the um the the the. The uh, what is it called again? The ob- the obscurus, right? Yeah, yeah. The obscurus. the obscurus is tremendously powerful and can wreak a tremendous amount of destruction. The ink, and the it, ink monster. The ink monster, right? The uh, the, the closeted gay teenager. Yes, the, basically, yes. The closeted who is meeting older men in alleys because his parents beat him when he comes right, home, yeah. and tries to tell them who he is, right? Which is, I just thought that whole that that as much as this movie is like covers its hands in gauze and pulls its punches as much as it can so that everything remains precious, like that landed for me, right? That like uh, that whole dynamic of like I got to go be Colin Farrell in an alley, like really landed for me in terms of that kid having a tough time, right? Uh, that, that kid was in rough shape. Um, that was really sad. Uh, but at any rate, yes, that I don't know. I don't know if if Grindelwald ever actually says why the Obscurus would help him in his quest to be a terrorist. And, and a terrorist, not in the sort of generic sense of doing bad things, but in the very specific sense of creating an outsized media and public reaction to an asymmetrical act. Right. The idea that there's no amount of destruction that Grindelwald is willing to undertake that would, without the operation of everybody noticing it, be able to leverage the kind of societal change that he wants. So he has to find like points of leverage. Right. I mean, I'm extrapolating. I'm just extrapolating about how it might work. He also wants the Deathly Hallows. And if he has all those, then whatever. He can be invisible and super awesome. Now, are we to believe that at one point, um, Tina, uh, Tina disarms uh, uh, Colin Farrell, right, and takes his wand. Yeah, but the, it's after uh, after the swooping the swooping horror or the swooping yeah. evil has bound his hand. So she acquires his wand after it's been knocked out of his hand. 
Okay, so he doesn't. She doesn't disarm him. No, because uh, I was wondering whether that wand was the Elder Wand, because based on the flashbacks in the Harry Potter movies, Grindelwald at this age should already have the Elder Wand. Huh. And if Tina disarmed Graves of the Elder Wand, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, uh, but probably not. Is my guess is probably not because they would have shown a, a picture of it and been like, "Ooh, this is an intense thing." Wow. Um, like the Hufflepuff scarf. There's that moment where you get to see Newt's Hufflepuff scarf, and you're like, "There it is." Hufflepuff has a hero, people. Hufflepuff has a hero. But the uh, the the um, uh, yeah, you do see a wand of his on the on the desk, but it's too fancy, I think, to be the Elder Wand. I I, I right. recall the Elder Wand in the films anyway being kind of knobby and and uh, kind of natural looking, whereas yeah. uh, Colin Farrell's actual wand is is sort of sleek and uh, uh, sleek and swanky looking, right? Right, right, right. Good yeah. point. Good point. What? Yeah. What about the house elves in this movie? Well, there. It's not. I mean, there are <laughs> there there are a number of social problems that are kind of <laughs> that are kind of glossed over, right? Because it's kind of the twenties, but it's not really the twenties. Uh, yeah. Wizard society seems to be a little more progl- progressive than than uh, mainstream society, but there there are I I don't know. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, to me a little bit the less said about it, the better, right? So just the idea that there is both a black female president of the u.s wizard congress and also like secret hideaways for house elves to like do menial labor in uh because otherwise they would they would still be slaves right in this point because the house elf liberation doesn't happen until after um or is it just i mean is 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 it just isn't isn't hermione the like the great white savior of the house elves (laughs) <laughs> the mother of dragons of the uh the mother of house elves the breaker of chains the giver of socks the giver of socks <laughs> yeah i was right there with you oh man but yeah but i thought that was interesting ron perlman was good um but eddie redmayne you want to talk about i mean we mentioned i mentioned the phantom menace uh, a little bit ago as this is a movie that's a lot like the phantom menace because it gives you this enormously convoluted uh, globe spanning backstory that will eventually potentially maybe lead to the harry potter universe conceivably when grindelwald meets tom riddle in much the same way that he's meet met credence because credence even looks like tom riddle a little bit right so it's like i mean i know in the movies in the original story uh, Tom Riddle doesn't go to Grindelwald until later, but I feel like in this story it seems likely that like we'll see a like Emperor Vader relationship. Uh, except in Emperor Vader, the Emperor is worse, but in Grindelwald, Riddle Riddle is worse. Uh, he's he's the Vader that's worse than the Emperor. But we even had the like well, lying down being shot by lightning. No, go ahead. Darth Plagueis Palpatine, perhaps is the uh, is the analogy you want to use, especially for comparing the Star Wars prequels to the. Fair enough, uh, fair enough. Control. So, so Johnny Depp is Darth Plagueis, which he always wanted to be, but now is, but he's Wizard Darth Plagueis, not Jedi Darth Plagueis. But yeah, but like eventually this will all lead to that happening. But for now, we have to deal with Jar Jar Binks, right? We have to deal with like the platypus that's going around stealing everybody's stuff, right? So the the irony that I'm going to immediately point out here is that. Um, uh, the original Star Wars trilogy had, was, uh, uh, you know, had a character who's more like an age of Newt Scamander, right? Uh, say, teenager to young adult, uh, and then the prequels go back and then focuses on a child. And Harry Potter is reverse, right? Yep. Um, the the original uh, through line of it is focuses on a child, and this this uh, prequel uh, series that we have now is focusing on a young adult. Uh, Which to, 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 to like the people are older now. Go ahead. Yeah, to to a certain extent, the the, the the he's a young adult, but he seems to be kind of curiously pre-adolescent, right? And it it. I, I sort of thought of Harry Potter as being targeted at, at latency children, right? And the 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 main well, it's very late in the story that the main character um, sort of gets a romance that matters, right? But the the real romance, the real kind of long simmering uh, romance of the book is is foisted off onto the the next two characters, and that's that's true of this movie as well, right? That that Eddie Redmayne and Catherine Waterston don't actually uh you know uh have have what what have some chemistry um or uh there's some magic between them um a magic that even wizards can't control 
love <laughs> but uh but the but the the sexy time romance the like with with kissing and whatnot um is foisted off onto onto queenie and kowalski right that that uh right. uh and and that's like i don't know that that seems to say something to me developmentally about how we should think of this character like what what age would you characterize I once saw a uh, a, a uh, Sesame Street documentary about the the uh, people who create characters on Sesame about the Sesame Workshop, and um, they like have precise ages and sort of developmental characteristics for all the puppet characters, all the monsters, and they uh, they're you know really. Uh, really precisely hashed out, and and I think that like I I'd peg Newt Scamander as like uh, as like twelve or an immature thirteen, right? And so mm. to a certain extent, it's not not about a child yeah. <laughs> because you know because yeah. it's a, it's about a man who doesn't it's about a young a uh, uh, young adult who who seems to be resisting a lot of the uh, uh, who seems to be resisting a lot of the uh, imperatives that you would normally expect a young adult to be bearing up to right one thing i really loved about newt though and this is something when we talk about similar the the hobbit is also similar right and that it's sort of when it does its prequel when the lord of the rings did its prequel it skewed younger it was a movie for a younger audience in much the same way that the phantom menace is for believe it or not a younger audience than star wars is um with the hobbit and with star wars in the prequels the characters are plays on types that already exist really, really solidly uh, in the in the originals. And I wouldn't even say that they're plays on. They're just examples of, right? It's like, this is a character you saw before. Here's another one. And he's going to do different things. And I really appreciated in this movie that Newt was, A, somewhat mysterious in what he wanted or what he was all about, and B, was not recognizable and was very distinct, I felt, from the characters in the Harry Potter story. Um, even other outcasts from Harry Potter, like Eddie Redmayne, uh, or rather Newt, mentions uh, his past relationship with uh, Lestrange, with Lestrange woman. And that sort of connects him in my mind to like, I guess, to, I don't know if it really is Sirius Black and, the, and, and maybe they just show up at the same time in the story when they sort of open that box. But even somebody like Sirius Black is very, very different from Newt as sort of the benevolent outcast who's been misunderstood by society, right? Like, uh, but is, is sort of a heroic person when the chips are down and that kind of thing. I don't know. Like, did you feel that, I mean, I guess he's, he's certainly ginger, right? And that's, that's not new for, for Harry Potter, but I felt like Newt was, was fresh ground uh, as, as the sort of um, young adult who doesn't get along with people. And it's particularly is kind of fixated on, on animals and, and kind of legitimately cares about animals uh, as much as he cares about people. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's sort of like, uh, Neville is, is kind of a character in the, in the, uh, main series that I'd compare him to, but, but Neville is more, uh, herbology, I think, than, uh, than care of yeah. magical, magical creatures. But he's a, um, yeah, he's a sort of, uh, he's a sort of nerdy kid. He'd be a computer kid in, you know, if it were set in the, in, the uh in the world of millennials or something <laughs> you know well and also in these expansive storytelling universes this type of character is most uh often a supporting character right there's like yeah. very narrowly falls in the type of the nerd or the animal lover that sort of thing and not uh the set supposedly the main character the center of attention so that that felt imbalanced to me but it sounds like you guys are more appreciative of it and how it brings something different to the table Hufflepuff has a hero, man. Hufflepuff doesn't usually get heroes. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, but it, well, it's funny. Like a lot of the uh, – since a lot of the the uh, action takes place in institutions, in the like the, the magical congress, um, uh, MACUSA, uh which is a terrible acronym. But the, uh, the, a lot of the, the action has to do with kind of departments and like there, there are, uh, there are, um, there's muscle in brown trench coats, right? To do the pew, pew, pew with, with the wands, right? Like there's, there's something, uh, there's something interesting going on. And like the thing I noticed most about Eddie Redmayne is that how the, we sort of focused on his face as he watched things happen so much. And that like there, there, the, the, 
you know, particular quality of affect that he seemed to have when he was looking at, he was looking at these things happen, uh, was a kind of detached fascination, right? Rather than, rather than being, um, Rather than being like Harry, for example, who wants to to run into the run into the middle of of the action, it's not just that he's antisocial. It's not just that that he's kind of uh, taken up with these obscure he, these obscure pursuits, right? He's like uh, he's playing with he's playing with he's like doing animal husbandry when uh, when all his friends are are trying to date girls and stuff. The it, it's that like when the animals are are when the fantastic beasts are rampaging around and causing all kinds of destruction he just gets this kind of wonderstruck uh look a dreamy look on his face and and stares at it and that's that it seems fundamentally kind of non-dramatic uh to me to sort of be lost in contemplation at the moment of greatest action um and uh, you know this this is another way in which he he seems like a a a bit of a bit of a strange hero right yeah i mean i think we know from stuff already that he doesn't die but I would. This is the kind of character that, based on just off what I see in this movie, I would not be surprised if he died in the next movie and was replaced for the remainder of the series with a different protagonist, because there's this guy doesn't seem to to be living that dream, right? To be that big hero in that big action story. He's he's the guy who's there, and and the study the story is somewhat of a study of him, but it is not. He is not a sort of l'estatsemoi, you know, absolutist. Then you know the narrative lives in the character, and this is this is the story. This is Ant Man starring Ant Man with the big Hollywood star playing Ant Man in the Ant Man suit. Right. right. There's another Ant Man, but he's not Ant Man anymore. This guy's Ant Man. Right. Ant Man. Ant Man. Ant Man. Or like the kind of thing where it's like, I don't want to be Spider Man. You have to be Spider Man. If you can't, we can't do the movie. Right. Like this is not that kind of character where the movie rests entirely on his shoulders. The 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 this is a character who is this sort of the brings the audience through but he's not even the luke skywalker he's got he's got kowalski to do that he's not the character that the audience is supposed to identify with yeah it's uh, to a certain extent there's something weird about there's something uh, akin to lord of the rings about it right like because Mm -hmm. uh, uh you know lord of the rings um or or the Hobbit, right? Like the the uh, I, I'm given to understand. I'm not a specialist, but I'm given to understand that that J.R.R. Tolkien thought about his novels like philologically. That is to say, if this were actually a document in the world, how would this document have come into the world? And that like this actually this really profoundly affected his thinking about how he um, about how he wrote the how he wrote the stories. Right? It's not just that that you know an omniscient narrator is telling stories. There there is a uh, um, there's a sense of like how these how these artifacts came to be. In this case, this the the um, the title of the multi film you know series uh, mm-hmm. is the title of a fictional book. Right, that exists yeah. inside uh, inside the universe, and well, so it's a nonfiction book, but it's a f- book that doesn't exist. Well, right, I'm right? sorry, it's a, it's a uh, it's a nonfiction book inside a fictional universe. Is yeah. is what which I mean. exists? That book does exist. You can buy Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, they sold it as a comic comic relief benefit. Right, eighty percent of the of the proceeds from it went to uh, help ki- uh, kids in poverty. I believe something along those lines. But yeah, I, but it's one of Harry Potter's textbooks in sh- Harry Potter. Right. Um, so that I mean, the fact that this thing has has been uh, has been created still doesn't like. Uh, I think my I think my point is still. Um, I think my point still makes a oh, lot yeah, of I sense that like the 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 star to a certain extent is this text right? Like is this uh, uh, is this fictional world? Is this like in world um, uh, artifact? You know, and that can be done. Uh, that artifact can exist with or without uh, any particular star in the the lead of the uh, in the lead of the movie, right? That's a good point. Yeah, they could have, we could have totally different characters in the next one, and I don't expect it. 
but it's possible. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it might be time to wrap up our discussion of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. I'm not sure we figured out uh, where to find them, but I thank the most Fantastic Beasts of all, uh, Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee, for uh, entering into this, uh, entering into the suitcase of our conversation with me. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.